Hello and welcome to the ACA Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting. If you would like to attend this meeting live, go to adultchildren.org and click on online meetings and then scroll down to find Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific Time. I'm happy to welcome our speaker tonight, Chris from Huntsville, Alabama. Well, I'm Chris. I'm adult child of alcoholic and dysfunctional family, and I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. I'm a little nervous, naturally. Um, it's been a while since I've spoken in front of this many people, even if it is on the computer. So, um, But I'm really grateful to be of service, and I know whenever I am of service, I get a lot out of it as well. And uh, preparing for this talk, um, it, I, I really had some big realizations in organizing uh, the, the years that led up to me coming into program and stuff like that. So I, I really need to start my story uh, as an adult child uh, with my great-grandparents on my dad's side. I'll start on my dad's side first. My great-grandfather was an alcoholic, and he actually died in a fire because he was so drunk he couldn't get out of his cabin when he dropped a, a burning cigarette in his bed. And uh, he, he died in an alcohol-related death. My dad was an alcoholic. Um, and he died at a very young age of alcoholism and alcoholism-related um, problems. And I found out um, in my later years that he was nursed as both he and my uncle, who were both alcoholics, but my uncle found recovery. They were nursed uh, on beer uh, for the first two full years of their lives to kind of like keep them quiet and stuff like that. And so, you know, I, I, I read somewhere that said, you know, uh, my parents didn't, when they were little, they didn't say, when I grow up, I'm going to be an alcoholic. I'm going to screw up everybody's life. You know, he, he started that because the family disease of alcoholism was passed on down to, to, to both my mother and my father, grandparents, parents, and then them, and then uh, to me in my multiple diseases, although alcoholism isn't one of those. So, um, my dad was an alcoholic, he was a womanizer, he was a chronic liar, and he was also uh, physically abusive to the family, my, my mom and my brothers and sisters as well. Then on my mom's side, my grandfather was an alcoholic and he actually was drunk one night, had an accident, and my mother's mother was killed in that car accident, not immediately, but she died soon after that of, uh, of the, um, injuries from that accident. And so my mom was um, orphaned by her mother at the age of nine. And uh, so, you know, also um, she was a very sensitive child. She always called herself the black sheep of the family and she had uh, multiple diseases. So um, my uh, going back just real quick to my grandfather, uh, I remember growing up, everybody, all of us kids were afraid of him. He was real stern and loud and he would tease, but not in a nice way and stuff like that. And uh, my mom uh, had mental illness and uh, later on became addicted to alcohol and prescription uh, pain medicines and then a lot of other things after that, which I will go into a little bit later. 
So if any of you have done the yellow workbook and you remember doing the family tree, that whole entire page for me was completely filled in with so much stuff. I took each person and listed all the diseases that they had related to alcoholism, mental illness, obesity, um, gambling, you know, all sorts of things like that. So, and in my family, there is alcoholism in every direction, up and down and sideways, diagonally and everywhere. So, you know, it's like basically I was screwed from the get-go on, on a lot of this. So I want to go next into the pivotal events in my childhood as related to the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust. I'll never forget the first time I heard somebody, and she was an adult child. It wasn't in an ACA meeting, but it was in another 12-step uh, meeting as adult child. And I remember hearing that and then just holding my breath going like, Oh my goodness, that just, that, that just explains so much. So I'll again, start with my dad. Um, mostly my dad just wasn't around. He was like a traveling salesman or something. I have maybe five memories of my dad in all the years. Uh, at the age of nine, he left and I never saw him again till his funeral, but I only have about five memories. Um, so when I was four, he left. When my mom got pregnant with kid number six, my mom had a nervous breakdown and us four older kids went and lived in an orphanage for a year. Then after my mom had the baby, uh, we, we came back home. But before I go on, uh, what happened in living in that orphanage was um, first we were abandoned by my dad and we were abandoned by my mom because me, me and my young, especially me and my younger brother, that, oh, she said, oh, yeah, we'll be back, but they weren't there. And a year is a long time for a young child to, to not, have, not be around a parent or anything. And so, um, you know, that's where the abandonment started. And uh, when I was in the orphanage, uh, we were all separated from each other. The boys and the girls were separated and the age groups were separated. And we were just enough so that I never even hardly got to see my brothers and sisters at the orphanage as well. And at the orphanage, I learned that if you were good and if you were, um, if you did like when we were helping and stuff like that, if you did a really good job, you got all sorts of attention and the older uh, nuns at the orphanage, they would hug you and they would love on you and tell you how sweet you were and, you know, you'd get treats and stuff like that. So I picked up on that real quick because, you know, it, it was a way to get attention and stuff like that. So that's where my perfectionism and, and uh, stuff like that and being the little Miss Goody Two-Shoes started. Okay, so when I was five, we all came back, but my dad was nowhere around and nothing was said. He just, he wasn't there. And my mom never said why, nobody ever talked about it. He was never mentioned. And so we never talked about it. So more, don't talk about it, okay? Um, then I had an older neighbor that sexually molested me off and on for about nine months and later to find out that he molested many other children in the neighborhood. But again, I was young. I didn't know there was anything wrong with it. And I got a lot of attention from that. Um, I didn't know. Well, anyway, some, my mom found out about it and in her defense, 
She told every single, she went door to door in a two block radius telling every single parent not to make sure their kids did not go to that guy's house. And uh, he happened to live right next door to us. And uh, I didn't find that out till years later. But again, I was just told you you may not in under any circumstance go over to that man's house and none of you other kids are allowed to either. But know why we didn't, no, again, we didn't talk about any of that, okay? I, I didn't know that anything wrong was done, but the effects of that event, of course, you know, years down the line affected me greatly. Um, in that in that coming back and being the, the good little girl and that I must have done something bad because dad was gone and mom and dad both left the first time. And so that started a lot of my... Um, you know, my needing to be perfect and that, um, you know, I just, that was just became a part of my life. Then when I was eight, my dad came back out of the blue and my mom got pregnant with my uh, youngest sister, which would have been number seven. Okay. Um, in that time, again, I have maybe only a couple memories, but the first pivotal event was, of course, the orphanage. The second one was the sexual molestation. And the third one is one day, uh, as lots of kids, we all had chores. And I had my job was to clean the bathroom. And I had closed the toilet and put a comet can on top of the toilet. And meanwhile, I was cleaning something else. And uh, my dad came in and he had been drinking. I could tell because he smelled like alcohol. And... Um, he, he picked up the comet can and he looked at it and he says, isn't, wasn't, wasn't, shouldn't have this been put away somewhere or something like that? And I said, oh yeah, but I wasn't sure if I was going to need it again, blah, 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 or anything like that. So anyway, he sat me down on the toilet seat with the comet can and started talking to me really sweet. Like now, now Chrissy, you know that, you know, you're supposed to put stuff up and blah, blah, blah. And, and then he kept kind of tapping me on the head with the comet can. Now, do you understand that? And then, and it would get harder and harder. And I was starting to get scared, you know, because, and then he, he just all of a sudden went into a rage and literally picked me up by my hair because he was real close to me, picked me up by my hair and threw me across the bathroom. And I landed in a the porcelain bathtub, you know, in a, in a heap and stuff like this. And, you know, I mean, I was, I was so shocked. I was hurt. I, I was just, I was totally just, I, I didn't know what. And then he came over and he stood over me and he said, and if you tell anybody about this, you're going to be sorry. So there's where my don't feel, uh, don't talk, don't trust. Because he, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, he came on and he was so nice and sweet. And I thought, oh, this is great, you know, and then picks me up and throws me across the room, uh, picked me up by my hair. So that those three things were, were the damages, the primary damages that happened. And most of the other things that happened just augmented that. But in the meantime, I, since my mom had six and then seven kids, she, you know, we were not neglected, really, we weren't. But there was only so much of my mom to go around. And unless you were bleeding or dying or 
you know, really screaming bloody murder or something like that, you didn't get a lot of attention from her specifically. And I had been complaining for a long time, uh, probably close to eight or nine months about my left knee hurting all the time. And it just, well, it couldn't see anything wrong. You know, okay, you're just trying to get attention or something like that. Well, as it turned out, I got sick in like November or something and had to go to the emergency room and they did an EKG and a chest X-ray and I had rheumatic fever. And so I would, because of that, I was not, uh, I was very much a tomboy outside nature girl run around and I wasn't allowed to do anything for a year. I wasn't even allowed to go up and downstairs. I had a pee in a pot at the top of the stairs to the basement. It was awful, but you know, I, I just, I felt like because I had rheumatic fever, that, that again was bad, okay, that I had done something bad to cause it and that I wasn't allowed to do anything I really didn't understand. So pretty soon um, after that, when I was nine, my, my baby sister was born in March and in May, my dad took all the money that my mom had put away for the baby stuff and he left and I never saw him again. And she was, of course, devastated. We never talked about it. But what happened from that was I, because I had been bad, I made the promise that I would take care of my mother and do everything to make her life easier, to take care of my younger brothers and sisters, to, to be a perfect little girl, to never talk back, to never disobey. I mean, you know, just, just made that promise. So control, hypervigilance, what, when's something going to happen next? Superwoman, never good enough, hyper-responsible, and solidified all of the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, okay? And um, as part of that, um, you know, from the age of 11, I did the grocery shopping and cooked most, started cooking most of the meals every night. Um, you know, and in the meantime, my mom, she was a single parent of seven kids just trying to muddle through. And she had this thing, and I remember it, and she dreaded the day. Every morning, she dreaded until she had her second cup of coffee. We were not allowed to talk to her. You couldn't get anything, do anything, lunch money. It didn't matter what. She had to dread the day. So there again, you know, that thing that, okay, I'm bad. I got to make everything right. I got to fix it. That was my thing, okay? Um, so what I also learned from that, in addition to don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, you damn well better not ask because you're not going to get it. Okay, so add that on to the, to the first three. And I want to I balance that with saying that my mom did a great job. We had a lot of good times growing up. There was a lot of love. Uh, we had a lot of play and stuff like that. And a lot of this was from my own, you know, all my brothers and sisters, they have their own stuff, but they, they, um, you know, they dealt with it in, in different ways. So um, in high, when I was in junior high, my mom met this guy, Ed, and he was, you know, the second love of her life. But what happened was when she dated him, she started drinking. And uh, then I guess after about a year or so, they were talking about getting married, but he found out he had 
uh, advanced prostate disease. And, and back in the 1960s, they didn't have any cure, you know, they didn't have cure for any of that. And that he wouldn't marry her because he had seven kids and she had seven kids and he just didn't want to do that. They broke up. And then that's really when my mom plunged into the second, like she probably had another mental breakdown like she did the first time when we went to the orphanage. So, um, and then of course we had gotten attached to him and there was some more abandonment there. And my mom went into a severe depression, uh, drinking, uh, years of suicide attempts and stuff like that. So my job, okay, was to swoop in and put out all the fires with all my sisters, uh, still living at home and, and stuff like that. So, um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but I want to make a couple of notes that I really had fear and problems with men. Okay, that's been my, you know, uh, part of my thing. I had a high school music teacher that I just adored that just ended up shaming me terribly, devastating me um, over some little minor thing in front of all of our music groups and stuff like that. I had an employer. I was a nanny for a summer and uh, actually I had two men. I was nannies for their wives and they put the moves on me uh, sexually. And then I had a dentist growing up that was an absolute um, uh, sadist. He purposefully did things to hurt and, and make you scared and stuff like that doing dental work. So I had a, I had real bad dental PST or PTSD. And, uh, but you know, um, and as a good para-alcoholic and a good codependent and all that stuff, um, all my boyfriends in high school uh, were, were titched and they all died at very young ages, 20, 30, 40, and 50. And then the other one, like from around college time, dropped off the face of this earth and nobody, to this day, nobody knows where he, where he is. So those are the kind of guys that I attached myself to. The good ones, I, after about a month, I just got rid of them because I knew what was coming from my dad. They're going to be nice to me, but then they're going to either hurt me or dump me. So, okay. Progressing ahead to um, just diseases, uh, promiscuity, shoplifting, hitchhiking. Um, I, I got herpes as a result of being promiscuous and there was more pain and pain associated with punishment. Um, and you know, I learned when I came into ACA is the first time I learned about the addiction to excitement and all of those things came into that. And I'll talk a little bit later about the addiction to pain. Um, my mom continued to progress uh, in her mental illness, and I was the one that that was always doing things. I couldn't do anything to change her, and I couldn't not do it. So I did the geographical cure. I left home and moved out to Colorado with my sister and um, got a job there. And then I married an addict, alcoholic, control freak, power-hungry, compulsive liar, uh, food addict, cheater, you name it. He was all of those things and uh, had maybe a couple of good years out of the eight that I stayed married to him. Okay, so this, this was my life. It was total insanity. It was all 14 of the laundry list traits, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, more don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, don't ask. And when, when my ex and I finally separated in a 15 month period, I separated 
I divorced. I moved. I started a full, another full-time job. I started back to school full-time. I was a single parent during all this time. Uh, my mom all tried to commit suicide and almost succeeded. And my dad died in 15 months. And trust me, I was a blubbering idiot. Uh, I mean, I don't even remember how I even managed to, to come out on all of that. But the good news is, is during that time, the first thing, this is the first big healing thing that happened to me is um, the beginning of healing for me was I was recommended to a really good therapist, um, psychologist, uh, about an hour away. And um, that started me on the path to some, some, a little bit of sanity. And the big takeaway that I got from that, because it was related to my divorce, was and this was so hard. It was a long time for me to accept this. For every, it's, I call it the dumper syndrome. For every dumper, there's a dumpy. And as long as the dumpy allows the dumper to dump, they are part of the problem. And see, this relates to codependency because I didn't realize that I was allowing all this abuse and um you know, these sick people that I was being around and stuff like that and, and trying to fix and take care of everybody. I didn't know I had a choice. Okay. So I, after my divorce, I moved to Huntsville, Alabama, and that's where I live now. Right after I graduated from nursing school, I, by a freak accident on a trampoline, I had a major accident. Um, I crunched my feet and ankles, my low back, and also my neck. And that was really, I mean, everything was so painful for so long, but I was a single parent. I'd started a new job. I couldn't even, I didn't even have sick time. I couldn't even take off of work. And so this is where I learned again to stuff everything down because I was in pain all the time and intractable pain. Um, and I wouldn't take any pain, any pain pill, pain pill, pain pills for it because of my mom's history. So in the meantime, I got, I met a great guy. I got married, you know, I mean, and la, 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 everything was okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, I learned that fine is an acronym for effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotionally bankrupt. And believe me, I was. But by the grace of God, I got back to my faith and that therapy helped, uh, you know, it, the dumpy thing was up here. I wasn't able to really put it into my life yet, but at least I had that. So um, because of the pain and that trampoline accident, that's when my, my eating disorder, um, overeating, binging, and then dieting, and then binging, and then dieting, and I gained and lost and gained and lost. And in my history of that, I probably gained and lost my body weight twice. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But anyway, that triggered my eating disorder uh, because of the control and stuffing everything down. And so um, what, so the next thing that I want to take you to in my healing process was I decided to go to massage therapy school. And during that process, I, I went to Atlanta with a gallon sized baggie of medicines, uh, stuff for asthma. I had this weird airway disease from the whiplash on the trampoline accident, all this. And through getting really great body work, I, um, Okay, great. Thank you, Adam, for my timer. Anyway, I got some really great body work that helped uh, 
the the feelings starting to come out. Okay, so I I learned about the body mind connection, and that that really uh, you know got the ball rolling for me. And most importantly, I learned how to take care of myself a lot better. And because of this fantastic massage work and deep deep tissue work and all that stuff, it really it it started me on my healing process. Um, I could start to feel. And in, in, in massage school, I learned, and I've heard it said in other programs too, you know, your issues are in your tissues. And everything that happens to us, we are physical, emotional, and spiritual beings. And anything that affects one of those affects the other two. And, you know, I, I, I saw it so much both in my nursing and in my massage therapy, how that played out. And not just in other people, but in myself, most importantly. So, um, because of the physical and sexual abuse, you know, I, I had all these, I was hanging on to a lot of this and the body doesn't lie. My head can fool me and even my heart can fool me. But when it gets down to my gut and my body stuff, that doesn't fool me. Okay, so I'm, I'm going forward to 2001. I wanted to change so bad. I didn't know how. And you've heard it said, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. So that's when I decided to start in the program. And my first program was OA. And in that, uh, in, in the realm of physical, emotional, and spiritual, that's where I learned to talk because of working through a fourth and fifth step and then eighth and ninth step and a daily tenth step and working with my sponsor and my group and stuff like that. I learned to talk and I also started a lot of physical recovery from that. And during that time, also, I was put with a surgeon that was able to do back surgery on me because otherwise I was looking at a wheelchair for the rest of my life. But in, in Germany, they were doing the surgery, but they weren't doing it here. Okay, so the big takeaways from starting program in that, in that realm was I got to redefine my higher power. I fired the higher power of my childhood, and I, I, I developed the higher power that, that I have now whom I call God. I learned who I was in that first, fourth, and fifth step that I did. And then I, my, my sponsor um, taught me three words that have been invaluable to me. I'm learning, I'm becoming, and I'm practicing, dot, dot, dot. And, you know, to say, well, I'm patient now, or to say, I'm, 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 uh, I, I'm not a control, you know, I'm learning to be more patient, I'm learning to let go. So that was, um, that was the start of physical recovery for me, and a little bit of emotional and spiritual. Then I was brought to Al-Anon as an adult child. And there I started to feel more, okay, the emotional aspect. Um, the way that the steps are done in Al-Anon and it just brought out a lot more of the feelings. And since I already had the other program on top, I was able to go ahead. The takeaways from Al-Anon are I had choices. Okay. React versus act. Uh, I could make a choice to take care of myself instead of taking care of others. And um, I call that the jump syndrome. Somebody says jump or whatever else stands for jump, or I perceive through some form of passive aggressive or manipulation that they're saying jump. Chris goes into how high, how far, how long, and how many times you want me to do it for. 
you know, like a, like a little puppy dog just can't wait to how high, how far, how many times you want me to jump? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I learned that I didn't have to jump. I didn't have to catch the ball. And not only because I didn't need to, but even if I didn't want to, and I just felt like the sassiest thing in the whole world when I first figured that out. It's like, oh boy, you know. Then I had the fortune to hear some really great speakers. The first um, one of the speakers that I heard that helped me so much said that if I don't transform my pain, I will transmit it. And I, and that to me, it was like, oh my gosh, that explains so much. Because being in, in biology and healthcare and science and stuff, I knew that the law of physics is energy cannot disappear. It can only change form. So all of this trauma and all these things that happened to me and the things that progressed in that, I, I was unable, I did not know how to transform that pain. So there's only two places it can go. Into myself, which I did by tamping down all the feelings and holding everything in or out to other people, you know, attack or passive aggressive or take over and, you know, disregard. And, you know, I was, I was a bitch really. I, I can't believe my husband's still married to me, but he's a good man. What can I say? So that, that really helped me a lot to know that uh, I could transfer. And once I started to transform that pain, then I could stop transmitting it. Okay. Then the third thing in Al-Anon was I heard a speaker say, as a good Al-Anon, I have holes in my head. Well, I knew I had holes in my head. You know, that was something we used to say, oh, you just got holes in your head. But what I didn't know is all the other people around me had horns and they would hook those horns into the holes of my head. And then if they went this way, I went that way. If they went this way, I went that way. You think of that, that bull ride thing where the, you get on the bull. That was me because their horns were hooked into my holes. And so I would just go in whatever direction that they would pull me in. And the biggest person was my mom. I did a whole summer of therapy disidentifying from my mom. If she was happy, I was happy. She was sad, I was sad. She was mad, I was mad. She was upset, I was upset. So anyway, that really helped me to see that, you know, I could get off the dumper syndrome. You know, I was allowing people to, to dump on me and stuff. Okay. In 2012, I was 60 years old and an ACA group finally got started in Huntsville. And a lot of us from our Al-Anon group as adult children uh, went over to the ACA group. Okay, now this is where the really deep healing begins. Okay, I learned I could talk. I kind of learned I could feel. I had a little bit of trust, maybe my sponsors and, uh, you know, maybe a couple other people, but not really. So when I, I'll never forget that first meeting. Okay, the, the first thing I heard was that alcoholism or dysfunction is a disease that infected me as a child and continues to affect me as an adult. And I still use that term loosely. So what I could see was every one of my coping mechanisms, my defense mechanisms, my survival mechanisms, the disassociation, the denial, the drugs of choice, everything, all of those things, especially the coping, all those you know, ways of coping, the 14 laundry list traits, in other words, became my character defects. 
Those were the habits that I had and that I developed. And, and I couldn't, I didn't know how to do otherwise with those. Those were my, those developed into my character defects on the flip side. And in my faith, what I've come to know is they also became my sins. If you're, but not in a, not in a bad way, but just in an awareness way, because I, I see uh, sin for me as anything that separates me from God, myself, or another person or people or institution or something like that. So that really, um, that helped me a lot when I heard that to make that connection between all the things that came up. Um, the second thing that I heard was, nonetheless, we behave as adult children, which means we bring self-doubt and fear learned in our childhood to our adult interactions. Well, there again, there's the whole laundry list of, of things to add on there. Codependency, perfectionism, manipulation, judgment, criticism, um, et cetera, et cetera. And believe me, kids, I was the queen of denial. Um, you know, with, oh, no, we're not going there. Oh, no, that didn't happen. Uh, I still to this day do not have uh, large swaths where I do not have any memories. Uh, friends tell me, oh, don't you remember when we did this? No, I don't remember. So anyway, this um, uh, period of time in here, especially at the beginning of ACA, the first in the feeling realm, the first really big feeling that came up was grief, grieving all the losses in my childhood, grieving not having a dad, um, grieving the abuse, grieving the, all the years that I spent taking care of everybody else and, you know, denying myself because I was such a good little girl, you know. And so that first, uh, for about a year and a half after we started working the yellow workbook, I would come home on Thursdays because I had my regular group and I had my fellow travelers group. And I would come home and literally have to curl up in the fetal position for um, about 20 to 30 minutes every Thursday after my ACA meetings because the grief, I just, I couldn't stop crying. Um, it, it just, you know, it just poured out of me, but it was a good thing. And I, and I knew it was a good thing. Okay, then um, I, I, I heard, I want to add in here on this, the, uh, the fight or flight syndrome. I'd always heard about fight or flight, and I especially knew that as a nurse. But then I heard in AC, I, I heard fight, flight, or freeze. And I didn't realize that I, I had, I either fought by pushing and control, or I, um, I, uh, I would freeze. And the freezing was the dissociation, was the, was the putting everything in the back shelf and not ever looking at it and pretending that none of that ever happened. So um, I just really, and then recently, fairly recently, thank, thanks to one of my sponsees, as a matter of fact, I learned about uh, fight or flight, freeze and fawn. F-A-W-N, meaning, oh, like if somebody upset me or something, I would go and I would just, you know, fawn all over them. Oh, don't you look so nice today? And, oh, I'm so glad to see you. And you're so smart. And, you know, that, like the sugary sweet when you know it's like they're probably going like this, you know. But I, I, I see that as one of the additions to fight or flight is freeze and then also fawn. So 
I, I just love that, you know, most of what you hear coming out of my mouth and my recovery is from other people. And that's why it's a we program. Um, the next big feeling that came out as we continued to work through the yellow workbook was shame. And that's the first time I heard in the big red book about the shame hit. And I never recognized it. I, I, I never knew that that's what that feeling was before. And the way I describe it is I would literally convolute on myself. My being would just fold in on itself and become like a, like a, what's those, a hedgehog that, that rolls into a ball. Now, looking at me, I look, I look like I was just like now, but inside of me was the, was the, was the convolution of my entire being. And what I learned in ACA was that um, guilt is the God-given moral compass that I have that tells me I did something wrong. But because of all the things that happened to me, I believed I was something wrong, that I could never be good enough. And that's where all this overachieving and perfectionism and all that came to. And I was finally able to separate guilt, which is the healthy emotion, from shame, which is now, I, I, it's toxic shame. I mean, shame is always toxic. So that was a huge growth for me. But I, I had a lot of shame hits in, the, in that process. And what I also came to know is under the addiction to excitement, shame hits. If I didn't have something to be ashamed about, I would do something purposely so that I could actually have a shame hit. Because my body doesn't know the difference between good stress and bad stress. So it'll do, you know, it'll, it, in excitement, you know, it'll use bad stuff to also get that, that, that hit. Okay. So um, I want to say a little bit about the ACA workbook. When we first started working this book, and there's four of us that have been fellow travelers all together, and now we're doing the laundry list workbook. Um, we thought, oh, we'll, we'll be done with this in a couple of years, you know, come on, let's get through with this. Okay, kids, it took us seven years to get through. We finished in, in, in uh, the end of November, just this past 2020. Seven years to do that. And I just, uh, it was such, it's such a gift to me. So I just want to put a pitch out there. If you're not in the fellow travelers group and work in that yellow workbook, oh my gosh, it, it truly is what changed my life. So now the big feeling that's coming out for me now in this feeling part of don't talk, don't, don't uh, feel and don't trust. And this is getting me to the trusting part is fear and anxiety. For two years now, I have been having terrible anxiety attacks. Um, and so I just, you know, and I know it's a process of all of the, all of the fear and everything and trying to learn how to give up control. So, what ACA does for me is it brought me really truly into the spiritual solution because it's a spiritual solution to a physical, whether whatever kind of drugs of choice it is and uh, uh, mental compulsions and physical cravings or drugs of choice or whatever. And um, this has been the hardest for me of the don't talk, don't feel, don't trust. I can ask, I can talk and I can feel now, but the trusting part is still that's the part that I'm having the, the most trouble with. And I've, I've kind of, um, when I heard in the solution on page 590, it's a spiritual program based on action coming from love. 
Well, I didn't learn what love was in a lot of ways. I thought love was somebody crapping on you, somebody taking advantage of you, you know, whatever. I just didn't really know. So I, I was learning that in, in OA and then Al-Anon and then also in ACA. And where I found that the most was in my fellow travelers. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that unconditional love, that's really, there was so much of that in that group. So um, that we are made to love our higher power. My words as a person comes from my higher power. And then I love myself. And then that love goes out towards others. And um, the everything good comes in the line under love and everything bad is fear. So, you know, the good stuff is program and, and the fear and all of the other things, the, the laundry list traits and all of that, you know, everything comes from fear. Those are the two basic emotions, fear and love. So, you know, it's either under this umbrella or under that umbrella and uh, that we are really made for love. And my job in program was to find out who Chris is and what God intended me to be, who God intended me to be not do because I was reminded last week I'm a human being not a human doing but for most of my life I've been a human doing so today all right and Adam if you would put or Julie if you would put in the timeline where I am on my um, time I'm getting pretty close to um, to uh, getting I just want to be sure on my timeline here uh, I want to do for you a couple of things from my recovery and this is my morning routine now that I have been doing. Okay. Oh, gosh, I have five minutes. All right, I'm going to go quick. Good morning, dear God, I offer to you my thoughts, words, and actions, and all that I do. Good morning, God, this is Chris. You know me. I'm a compulsive eater, codependent, adult child of alcoholics, control freak, worry word, and your precious child. That means we admitted we were powerless over food, alcohol, the effects of alcohol, people, places, and things, and our lives had become unmanageable. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves, meaning all the Chris's in here, could and wants to restore us to sanity. And we make a decision to turn our will, our life, our food, and our recovery over to the care, the care of God as we understand him. And then I would say, the third step prayer, and then my version, I, I personalize all the prayers and steps for myself, and my version of the ACA serenity prayer is, God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot and should not change, courage to change the ones I can, and the wisdom to know that they are me, myself, and I. So the hallmarks of recovery, humility, gratitude, balance, feeling. Just, you know, not, not just the good feelings, but the bad feelings, choices, detachment. Uh, I'm in better physical health now than I've been for 30 years because of program. I know how to have fun. I even discovered I have a sense of humor. But one of the biggest things are boundaries. And I, I'm going to use the no thing, okay? When I first learned to set boundaries and I learned to say no, it was, no, doggone it, I don't want to do it. And I would really, you know, like, Ugh, like this. And then it was, no, no, I don't want to do it. And then it was, no. And then it was, no, thank you. And now it's like, no, but thanks for asking. And I don't have any guilt or any discomfort now by saying no. 
And that has been such a huge, you know, and even if I, if I don't need to do it, it's a little easier for me. But then even if I didn't want to do it, I, I could just say no. Um, so let me see here. I wanted, I wanted to say real quickly, and then I'm going to finish up. Um, one of the things, this, this is the difference between then and now. I used to tell people the worst thing that ever happened to me was living in an orphanage for a year. That really, because I, you know, I forgot all about the sexual abuse and a lot of the other stuff, but I knew about the orphanage. And then in ACA, coming from victim to gratitude, I heard from so many people when, when their alcoholic dads were there or when they left, they went to foster homes, they were taken in by relatives who beat them and abused them. They lived, they were homeless, they lived on the street. I was finally able to see it's a perfect example of how what I thought was something terrible that God brought good out of and for me to be able to see that gratitude and have such a love and appreciation for my family. So um, what I want to end with, I have a poem that I wrote and um, I'm going to read that if I have time and then I'm going to have somebody read the promises. I can't remember who offered to do that. And then I'm going to come back on real quick and give you the question or topic for our um, thing. And um, Adam, you have a copy of the uh, of my poem. I didn't know if you were going to put it up or what, but I will go ahead and start to read this for you. This is called. Thank you. Yes, there it is. And I'll read it from mine because I, my bifocals won't allow me. The blessings of ACA. I grew up in a family with lots of dysfunction, but my ACA group has provided the unction. Alcohol, gambling, cheating, and more, mental illness and abuse all came through that door. Many generations with multiple diseases don't talk, feel, or trust, so everyone freezes. My heart, mind, and spirit were full of pollution but ACA has its 12 steps and the solution. You're probably wondering what makes it so great. The literature and meetings make the crazies abate. Before ACA, I felt always alone. Now this is where I found a new home. I listen intently to what's being said, nod my head in agreement to what's being read. Here in this room, I find solace and trust. No one ever says this or that, you must. Though my inner child was lost, now she is found. I really do like having her always around. Critical parent, be gone. No, no place for you here. My new loving parent replace, replaces the fear. Here I can feel and then talk all about it. And no one will say, I seriously doubt it. This group is my haven my family of choice. It's in ACA where I found my true voice. So I'm going to, where I want to lead into um, for my question is in my recovery, I have found that for me, uh, most of the promises have already come true. And this is 20 years. Next week will be 20 years total time in program. And so, um, uh, whoever's going to read the promises, if you would please go ahead, and then I'll come back on briefly. Hi, my name is Amy, grateful adult child. ACA promises. Number one, we will discover our real identities by loving and accepting ourselves. Number two, 
Our self-esteem will increase as we give ourselves approval on a daily basis. Three, fear of authority figures and the need to people please will leave us. Four, our ability to share intimacy will grow inside us. Five, as we face our abandonment issues, we will be attracted by strengths and become more tolerant of weaknesses. Six, we will enjoy feeling stable, peaceful, and financially secure. Seven, we will learn how to play and have fun in our lives. Eight, we will choose to love people who can love and be responsible for themselves. Nine, healthy boundaries and limits will become easier for us to set. Ten, fears of failure and success will leave us as we intuitively make healthier choices. Eleven, with help from our ACA support group, we will slowly release our dysfunctional behaviors. And twelve, gradually with our higher power's help, we will learn to expect the best and get it. And get it. Thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate that. Okay, so one of the things I've noticed, especially uh, in in well, in in all of my twelve step programs, that um, most people, but especially my fellow travelers in ACA, we have we're so quick to 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 see where we've done bad, where we've messed up, or how terrible we are, and so much trouble to acknowledge recovery, to acknowledge progress, to acknowledge good in ourselves, okay? So having just read the promises, what I would like for you to do is try to identify at least one area that you can really see yourself shining in recovery, you know? Thank you, Chris. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you for being so vulnerable. Thank you, Chris. That was great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much.